Hi, we are Inspired Churches and we are honored for you to tune in. We are a church that is being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ and walking in rhythms of life for the good of the city and for the glory of God. As we walk into a new year, we invite you to be part of the ministry by donating a gift today. Go ahead and visit us at inspirechurches.com. We're going to discuss three movements towards the idea of nakedness and covering in the scripture. Because believe it or not, there is a theology to being naked. And there is a theology to being covered. And we're going to talk about that tonight. And since the majority of us are all adults in the room, um, uh, I hope that you will be able to understand. Um, and so with that being said, I've entitled this message, Two Coverings. Uh, if, you, if you haven't been with us, we're in a sermon series talking about Jesus being the second Adam or the last Adam in that Christ has come to accomplish what the first Adam failed to accomplish. And week one, we talked about two men, Jesus and Adam. Uh, last week, we talked about two temptations. Adam was tempted in the garden, and Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, and we talked about how Jesus is the greater, superior Adam, and so today we move from two temptations to two coverings, and so uh, if you're taking notes, these three movements are going to be the movement of creation, the movement of the fall, and then the movement of redemption. In fact, if we could tell the story of salvation, if we can put the scriptures into a, a, a if we could create a synopsis of the scriptures, the text, we could talk about the scriptures in four chapters. Chapter one would be creation. How did we get here? God created us. Chapter two would be the fall. How, what went wrong? How did everything get turned upside down? Chapter three would be redemption. What did God do to take and make what we made wrong and make it right? And then chapter four would be consummation. That day in the future where everything is made new and we are back to a place of paradise again. Amen. So we're going to kind of follow these three movements today to talk about nakedness and covering. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, have your way this morning in every heart and every mind. Lord, I pray for uh, just even my communication to be clear and concise. I pray, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate the text so that the word of God would not come back void in this room, so that every heart, mind, everyone in this room, from the front row to the back row and everything in between would walk out of here saying that they heard something from the Lord. I pray you would have your way. Let your will be done in this place um, on earth as it is in heaven. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, movement one is creation. We all know the story. Uh, you don't have to be a, a, a regular church attender to kind of know something about the creation story of Genesis. Uh, and we know that in the beginning, we're told that God created everything, not just good, but he said very good. He created the sun, the stars, the moon, the sky, the water, the land, the mountains, and he created man, and then he created a, a woman, and then they came together in marriage, and he looked at all of that, and he declared it to be very good. And in this ideal reality, uh, this ideal reality was summed up by the author, which was Moses, Moses authoring the book of Genesis. This ideal reality, this very good creation was summed up in a very peculiar way. After God had created everything and everyone, well, not everyone, but everything in Adam and Eve, and they had come together in marriage, there's a peculiar statement that kind of sums up paradise, and it's found in Genesis 2, 25. And the peculiar way that Moses describes very good or how he kind of sums it all was this and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed now out of all the ways that Moses could have summarized the glory of the new world why did he choose nakedness and shame or unashamed what does it mean to be naked now to be naked is to be exposed to be naked is to have every single part of you fully seen. Both the parts that you're proud of and the parts that make you feel insecure. Now with the exception of nudists, the majority of us, that was a joke, wasn't, wasn't a joke, but I was hoping to get some laugh. The majority of us fear being naked in public, 
even if it's just with one other person. Some of us even fear that kind of nakedness with our spouse. And most of us fear nakedness because all of us fear the possibility of what might happen if we are fully seen. So Moses is really saying something extraordinarily profound about Adam and Eve in Eden. You see, in Eden, Adam was completely exposed. Exposed to himself. Exposed to his wife. Exposed to creation and exposed to God. And yet Adam was without one ounce of embarrassment. Or one ounce of shame. Now this caused me to start thinking about the concept, to reconsider the concept of paradise. When I say paradise, what do you think about? You know, when we hear paradise, I think we often think about paradise's outward glory, right? Think about it. Fertile gardens, lush vegetation, ocean breeze, scenic views. But we cannot forget about the beauty of its inward glory. You see, paradise is not just about what's outside. Paradise is about what's inside. Are you with me? We can't forget about its, the glory of its inward beauty or its inward glory. No guilt. No shame. No embarrassment. No rejection. You see, Adam wasn't just enjoying the paradise of his outer world, but he was enjoying the paradise of his inner world. So Moses captures what I think was the true beauty of the garden. The beauty of being fully exposed without fear. I think Moses captures an inner glory of paradise. The beauty of being fully exposed without any fear. Now, like I started this by saying this week as I was studying, I just started to reconsider paradise. Right? And to be honest, as much as I love the beaches of Hawaii or the mountains of Montana, give me a basic view with no sin, no guilt, and no shame. And that might feel more like paradise to me. Y'all hear me? Now, some of you are like, I don't know. You know, I'll take a little Hawaii with some shame. <laughs> but I think if we're being honest, like, you know, give me the basic view with the internal world at peace. With the weight of shame no longer oppressing me. And as I was thinking about paradise and why you, some of you are like, why did you pick Montana? I really enjoy it. I enjoy the rivers. I enjoy the forests. I enjoy the mountains. It's beautiful. But when I started to think deeper about paradise, I started to think about our culture, right? We love to escape, don't we? Right? And, and in the Bay Area, some of you might differ, but, but we live in a, in a particular society that can afford to escape, Right? I mean, really, I mean, even if you're in this room and say, well, I don't have a lot of money, like you are well off compared to the rest of this world. And so we not only love to escape, but we can afford to it. Well, some of us can't, but we still do it. Right? I mean, think of the ways we escape. We escape through technology, don't we? Video games. Any gamers in the house? I love video games. I can escape in a video game. Right? Or how about escaping kind of in our endless scrolling in our mobile devices? You ever get home from a long day or maybe you're still working and you just pause. I'm just going to check something. And then on and on you go. Social media, Twitter. I don't know what else is out there. Facebook. I'm, I'm 40. You know what I mean? <laughs> Ain't nobody else on it. Still there. We escape through technology. We also escape through intoxication. Right? I mean, there, there are probably many in this room uh, that battle with one too many, right? Like you, you move beyond the line of like, you move from buzz to drunkenness, right? Like the, for, this is an escape. Uh, 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 smoking marijuana, the intoxication, there's an escape. There's an escape. There's a relaxing. There's a getting away. 
uh, and, and really, you know, I think the, and we spoke about this in our idolatry series uh, a year ago or so, but I also don't want to leave out food. I think the church loves to hit on alcohol and loves to hit on, you know, substances, but we don't talk about food. We can be some of the biggest, the church can be the most gluttonous people, right? And so we escape in food. I know I escaped in food in a pandemic. You're locked in the house. Man, what are we eating for dinner? How can I just sit there and just enjoy and eat? And I'm dealing with the after the, the repercussions for that. We all are. But we escape. We escape through technology. We escape through intoxication. We vacate. Our vacation is an escape. Right? Not all escape is wrong. Disneyland is an escape. Right? I mean, the happiest place on earth. I mean, they do a great job of advertising paradise, don't they? <laughs> uh, and though we escape with external things, I think many of us are unaware that what we're really escaping is us, inside us. So if that's the truth, then you can go to Montana, Hawaii, Disneyland, and you still are there with yourself. And so our escapes can never really ultimately satisfy. Some of us go on, go on vacation, we come back more tired. <laughs> and so Adam found himself truly in paradise because Adam was created righteous. Do you know that? Adam was created sinless. There was no sin in Adam. He was made in the image of God. The scripture says he was made in the image and likeness of God, an image that the psalmist would later describe as, as clothed in splendor and majesty. Adam was made in the image of God. He was made righteous. And so though he might have been naked, he was clothed in the splendor and majesty of God. Are y'all hearing me? In fact, the psalmist will go on and say that the image of God or God's glory in himself is wrapped in light like a garment. Adam was truly in paradise because there was nothing to hide, nothing to run from, nothing to conceal, nothing to worry about or be ashamed of. Adam was in true paradise because he was free to be naked and unashamed. But if you know the story, the paradise will be short-lived. We move from creation to fall, the second movement. We're told... Adam was created in the likeness and image of God. He was created sinless, which is why God could even say everything was very good. But even though Adam was created righteous, we know that he would not remain righteous. Y'all know the story. Adam fell into temptation. He disobeyed God and he allowed sin to enter into God's good creation. And the immediate results of a world that had been corrupted by sin. Now, we all know that God told Adam, like, if you disobey, you're going to die. But, you know, when Adam disobeyed, he didn't immediately die. There was actually a more immediate result. The immediate result of a world that had been corrupted by sin was this. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7 says this. Their eyes were opened and they knew that they were what? Naked. And so what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Now I want you to notice the juxtaposition between like pre and post fall worlds. Like pre-fall, they were naked and unashamed. And then post-fall, we see that they're now naked and what? Ashamed. Now as I was reading and studying this week, uh, I ran across couple of articles written by R.C. Sproul, who's a theologian, and he was actually commenting about a book that I wanted to share with you. In fact, I was talking to Marvin about this this week, but there's this book that's called The Naked Ape. Now, it's written by zoologist Desmond Morris, and Desmond Morris indicates that of the 193 species of primates, 192 of them are covered from head to toe in fur or hair. He goes on to tell us that there's only one species of primates, the Homo sapiens, that's us, that are not covered from head to toe in fur or hair, but instead choose to close our bodies with artificial coverings. 
And though some human societies wear minimal coverings, while the rest of the primate world runs around carelessly naked, only human beings carry a strong aversion toward being public and nude. In the animal kingdom, you will not find tools for sewing. <laughs> you won't find like, needles for threading. Because in the animal kingdom, you won't find sin. Only human sin. And only sin, according to the text, produces the kind of shame that compels us to cover up. Now, what is shame? Shame can be the result of sinning, but shame can also be the result of somebody sinning against you. Are you with me? It could be the result of your sin, but also could be the result of somebody sinning against you. In fact, there are many of us that walk in a shame that was placed over us because somebody sinned against us. And I don't have to go into details because I'm sure many of you already feel that. And the interesting thing is shame never comes on its own, right? But, it, but it's partnered with sin. It's partnered with sin. Shame lingers, doesn't it? Shame makes a home in our minds. Shame wants to become part of our identity. Shame walks with us. Shame talks to us. And if you think about guilt and shame, and again, I'm not a professional, but as I was reading and researching this week, there was kind of a really helpful explanation. You know, when I feel guilty about, it's about something that I did in the moment, so I feel guilty about that. But shame isn't just about being guilty for what I did, but shame, it has to do with who I am. It's like an identity. Like, so I, it's not just I did something wrong, but I am something wrong. And so there are things that have taken place, things that have happened, sins that we have committed or sins that have been committed against us that are embedded into our identity. And so we walk in this world with a script. We walk in this world deep down with a heaviness of shame and identity. And so what happens when you are walking with an identity of shame? You sow fig leaves. Like what fig leaves are you wearing? What are, what's your choice of fig leaves? What are you doing in your own strength to cover up, to conceal? Even as I'm speaking this, like I know this is a tough, because it's even hitting that space. Shame lingers. And shame is the motivation behind our hiding, isn't it? It's the motivation behind our concealing. It's the motivation behind our escaping and covering up when it comes to the shame. And then... I want to move, when it comes to the shame of our own sin, it isolates us from others. It isolates us from God. This is what shame wants to do. And I want you to see this. The first couple in the scripture, they didn't make clothes for fashion. Right? The first couple did not make clothes for protection. What we see in the first couple is that they made clothes not for adorning, but for concealing. For hiding. That's what the text says. And it's really interesting because if you read through that early stages of Genesis, there's a, an assumption that God used to walk in the garden and meet Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. Isn't that beautiful? Some of us like, I don't know. Well, that's right. That's actually theologically correct because it, it, it's not beautiful because we have something to hide. But, but prior to the fall, when the first, first couple heard the footsteps of their creator in the garden, they were eager. They were excited to meet with him. Like Eden, you know, Eden actually represents a temple. But it wasn't a temple made with hands. It was a temple that God had created. It was the place where heaven and earth collided. It was a place that Adam and Eve would anxiously, eagerly, excitedly go to be with their creator. 
And so prior to the fall, it was the place, it was the space that had been sanctified for God to meet with his people, to meet with his children. And so they would be eager and excited. What time is it? We can't wait to meet with the creator in Eden today. This is what it was pre-fall, but post-fall. After sin, after trespass, we're told that when they heard the creator's footsteps, they were terrified. And they ran, and they hide, and they covered, they isolated. And can I just say this? And I want to speak particularly to sin, particularly to the sin that we commit, okay? That's what I want to speak to you right now. This is the reality of holiness in the presence of sin. This is what holiness does. It reveals. Right? Like, this is what pure light does, right? Even by using the word light, light is something that what? Reveals. It exposes. This is the holiness of God who is righteous and lovely and pure and perfect. This is why our culture hates holiness. And why some of us, if we get too holy, you might say, you know what? That church is a little fundamentalist. This is why we avoid holiness. We hate holiness. We don't preach about holiness. You can go to a church and you won't hear holiness, repentance, sin, judgment. All of that is avoided. It's motivational speech to make you feel better about what you're about to do. But we're not addressing sin. Are you with me? And so the question is why? Why do we hate holiness so much? Right? This is why our culture will call holiness evil. Or intolerant. Let me explain. Nothing exposes nakedness more clearly than holiness. And so, can I be, can I be human? I can understand why. <laughs> I can understand why we would run. Why we would hide. Why we would deny. Are you with me? Yeah. Nothing drives us to hide more than the presence of God. Now listen, to a world that is in Adam, and we all are in Adam. In week one, we talked about Adam's sin was our sin. <laughs> Adam's guilt was our guilt. In a world that is in Adam, the apostle John, this is what he writes. Look at what he writes in John 3, 19 and 20. This is what he says. He says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. And people what? Loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. I feel, even as a Christian, I feel that. I hate the light. Even as a believer, I still wrestle. Like, man, like I feel a little guilty like reading this text. But to those who are in Christ, to those who are in Adam, this is where that, but to those who are in Christ, listen, to those who are in the last Adam, the second Adam, listen, the apostle Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may claim the excellencies, watch, of him what? Who called you out of darkness. And into light. And so to those who are in Adam, you hate the light. You despise the light. You hate judgment and sin and holiness. Because your deeds are wicked. But to those who are in Christ, he says, you are a royal priesthood. You're chosen. You're royal. You're holy. But then he says, because you declare with your mouth the excellencies of the one who's called you out of the dark and into the light, the marvelous light. I love that he used the word marvelous light. Hmm. And really, this is salvation, isn't it? Like, this is just another way. Like, every week, we're, like, using different themes, but it's all talking about the same thing. <laughs> I don't know if you've caught that. This is salvation. What is salvation? It's a process by which we are being brought out of what? Darkness. 
and brought into light. So that why? So that we can experience paradise. Not just the outward paradise, but we're being transformed to experience the inner paradise, the paradise that the first Adam lost. A sense of being naked and what? Not ashamed. Y'all with me? How y'all doing? I know usually I got, you know, I'm spitting. I got my vein popping out. I'm trying to be a little more sensical here, but stay with me. Now, I want to, looking at my time, I want to, I want to take a little discipleship detour, okay? Like, I just want to apply some things to you right now in this room, right? And, and if you're not a follower of Jesus, this is just an opportunity right now for you to kind of listen and see how kind of followers of Jesus move. Um, you can laugh <laughs> uh, inside. And then if you are a follower of Jesus, I want you to take this serious, okay? Uh, my jokes don't fall very often. Um, but followers of Jesus, listen, and I, you know, that word, sh- that word should, like, I'm very, I'm like aware now of even the language that will bring shame and condemnation, you know, but I, but followers of Jesus, like, it's really important that you learn to live life in light. Like if you're a, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, like if you have trusted in him and put your faith in him, like you should be growing and living in light, so you might be asking, well, that's very abstract. How do I live in light? I'm glad you asked. I, wanna, I want you to consider two rhythms, okay? Uh, two rhythms. A rhythm is just a pattern that you can repeat regularly. Uh, two rhythms that I love for you to consider practicing regularly to help keep you in the light. Like if I'm a follower of Jesus who's been called out of darkness and into the light, how can I live in light? Because I have a tendency to go into the dark. So I want to suggest two rhythms, okay? The first one is the rhythm of examine, the practice of examine. Let me, ex- let me explain what the practice of examine is. I think you should learn to pray David's prayer. And if you're taking notes, it's found in Psalm 130, 23 through 24. Psalm 130, and I don't have it on the screens. That's, all, that's my fault. But Psalm 130, 23 through 24. Right, this is the rhythm of examine. Like how as a Christian do I live in rhythms of light? Well, what is the prayer that David prays in Psalm 130? He prays this, listen, search me, oh God. He says, and know my heart. He says, try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked ways in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Right, so here's what I'm proposing as followers of Christ who want to learn to live in the light. I propose that you would regularly pray the prayer of examine. Search me. Search my mind. Search my thoughts. Search my heart. Search my ways. Now, I don't like being the hero of my stories. So I am not here to be idol worshiped. I am a sinner. But I am going to share with you something that I've started doing that might be something you would like to add, perhaps. Every year I look at my rule of life, just ways that the Holy Spirit is really calling me to be formed. And I can always, what can I do this year? How can I tinker with it? And one thing that I've added this year is at the end of every night, 10 minutes, I pray the prayer of examine for 10 minutes. I even put a 10 minute timer on. And here's what I do. I simply, listen, I retrace my day. That's all I do. I sit in the dark and I retrace my day. And I stop to praise God for the good things. And I repent for the places and spaces that I fell, I failed. That's what I do. And again, I want to go, man, Pastor feels so holy. I am not. Because if you were in that prayer time, you'd be like, ooh. You hear me? And you know what I've noticed in the very beginning? I used to like try to repent everything. <laughs> I used to go real wide. And then now I, I get stuck on one thing and I go real deep. Start repenting for my motivations, the idols of my heart. Are y'all with me? It's a simple practice, but it's starting to become a daily rhythm for me because I want to be someone who practices living in the light. I promise I'll preach soon and you guys are doing great. Second rhythm, living in the light. 
The minute I say this one, everyone's like, no, no, no. Okay, I'll do the exam and I'm not gonna do this one. This one's hard. The second rhythm is the rhythm of confession. <laughs> A low, mm. Right, James 5, 16 says this, therefore confess your sins to one another. Now, that's why I left my last church. <laughs> right? I tell somebody something, they're gonna run and tell everybody else. Well, you need to learn to tell the right people. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Just kidding, just kidding, I get it. But here's what James says. Confess your sins to one another and pray for each other. Who do you trust? What godly friends do you have that you feel safe enough to regularly practice confessing your sins? Now, I have to be honest. If I was the hero of number one, not gonna be the hero of this one, okay? Like, I have swung and missed in this area. There have been seasons where I felt like I've had these places and spaces and people, and there have been seasons where I felt a little dormant and dry in this area. But it's on my rule of life this year to really recultivate this space. Now, I, I occasionally, when I say occasionally, it's really a few times a year, gather with a small group of senior pastors. Now, as you know, as a senior pastor, there's a lot of performance. We wear our fig leaves, don't we? No? Can you imagine being a senior pastor and feeling like you have to live up to a perfection? I'm not here to make you feel bad for me. I just want you to know, like the way you perform, we perform too. We act. Okay. <laughs> what I really love about this group um, is that when we gather, we take the performance off and we confess. We confess. And we're not like, hey, uh, you know, I just, I didn't fast that much this week. You know what I mean? You know, like, you ever confess with somebody? And they're like, yeah, man, I didn't read the Bible. You're like, really? You're going to go there? That's your confession? Man, either I'm a terrible jokester or you guys don't experience this. Like, or maybe you just don't experience it. Like, you ever been, like, trying to be deep and, and, and you know somebody ain't tell. That's fig leaves, bro. You putting on fig leaves in here. You know what I mean? Like, you don't want to say it. And it's not easy. But, like, we sit in a circle and we confess. We confess idolatry, competition, rivalry, ego, lust. Oh, y'all ain't ready for that. Y'all ain't ready for what the pastors confess. There's also a small group of men that we have gathered a few times, and I, I really have in my heart to get better here at this church that when we've gotten together, we've been honest. And I'm like, look, I'm going to take my pastor hat off with you guys, okay? Like, you're going to see me naked. And I'm not quite sure you might still see me naked when I'm preaching, because now you're going to know it. You, get, you hear what I'm saying? And so for a, for a Christian, a believer, a follower of Christ who wants to regularly live in what? Rhythms of light. Like we should be people of light. Uh, uh, there's, a, there's a saying that has stuck with me for so long and I'm not even sure where it came from, but it's not mine. But it's better for disclosure than exposure. Better to live a life of disclosure than exposure. You know, that's why I always like love hanging out with like the person, everyone thinks, well, that person's got a messed up person life. You know what I mean? But man, they're coming in. They're telling me everything. Man, Pastor, I'm going to tell you what. I'm like, oh, shoot. Versus the Christian who's been a Christian for 20 years and like, well, you know, I just struggled to read my Bible this week. I'm like, no, you didn't. And so you see, the baby Christian is living in the righteousness of Christ. The mature Christian is living in their own fig leaves. Y'all with me? Y'all with me? Okay. Some of you get so mature and then you just, mm -mm. and some of you have scripts that your parents deposited to you. Yeah. Don't say nothing. That's not how we do it here. This is what we look like. This is how we are. And this is, you, know, you don't, you, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, okay. Not my parents. Love you, mom. I love it because my mom, she's still saying amen. You know what I mean? Like, you know, she would have got a little quiet there. You know what I mean? Like. Because she's always, amen, <laughs> your parents, what? <laughs> Love you, mom. Love you, mom and dad. <laughs> I need to go quickly. You guys are doing great. And here's what I want, you to, I want you to see. Every time I'm honest, 
every time I lay my reputation aside, every time I overcome my fear of rejection, my need to look good, my fear of being judged, every time I'm willing to freely confess my sins, I'm coming out of Adam's fig leaves and I'm learning to live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. I'm admitting that I cannot in my own strength get this right. That there's only one who walked this life perfect. There's only one who walked this life righteous. There's only one who was tempted in every way that I was tempted, and yet he did not sin. There's only one. Finally, we move from movement one, creation, to movement two, fall, to movement three, redemption. What has Christ done to clothe our nakedness? And how can we live in that freedom? This is the longest introduction I've ever had. If you have your Bibles, I promise we're almost finished up. If you have your Bibles, we are gonna read a parable. And I'd love for you to go there. Matthew chapter 22. We'll have it for you on the screen. I promise you, you're like, man, you're just starting. No, I promise you we're, we're, we're coming to a conclusion here shortly. But I do wanna make sure we get through this parable. Again, creation, fall, redemption. What has Christ done? What has Christ done? Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. Now, this is a theologically thick parable, and I'm not going to hit everything. But I just want to hit one thing, okay? Which was hard, because I want to hit it all. Trust me. But I was like, man, if I'm going to get these guys out of here in time, I got to make sure I hit the main thing. Okay. Matthew 22, 1 through 14. This is a parable that Jesus is telling. Listen to the parable. Listen to the word of the Lord. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying the kingdom of heaven may be compared. I love that because when he says the kingdom of heaven can be, may be compared to what he's about to tell you is I'm going to tell you something about the kingdom. Like you're about to hear a secret. I'm about to reveal to you the nature of heaven right here. He says the kingdom of heaven may be compared to you. You ready? A king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Y'all see that already? And sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who were invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat calves have been slaughtered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them. Dang. The king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Man, this is heavy, but I'm not going to get into all that. <laughs> then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. So therefore go, go, go to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. Hallelujah, come on. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found. I love this, both bad and good. Amen, thank you for putting that in there. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king, when the king and this is the part that we're really gonna focus on, but when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. How many of you know when the king asks you a question, there's none you can say. Then the king said to his attendants, this is going to sound harsh, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are called but few are chosen. Again, there's a lot in this parable. A lot of lessons to be learned about heaven. But for the rest of our time, I only want to draw your attention toward the man who entered the feast wearing the wrong clothes. You catch that? There's a man who entered the feast, but he wasn't wearing the right clothes. We're told after inviting the privilege. You see that? It seemed like the privilege were invited. Like they were landowners. They were all wealthy people with businesses. We're told that after inviting the privilege, 
and experiencing their rejection. And there's so much I could talk about that, but I got to move on. The king opens up the wedding feast that he's having for his son to anyone. Y'all remember that? Now notice the king's servants were told to go out to the main roads. I love that he says, you know, I'm going to move from inviting an exclusive privileged few. We're going to go out to the main roads where everybody's at. It was almost as the king was over the elite, the privileged. And now he just wanted to fill his banquet hall with anyone who would come. And I love this. On the main roads, you're going to find Jew and Gentile. On the main roads, you're going to find the rich and the poor. On the main roads, you're going to find the good, the bad, and the ugly. On the main roads, you're going to find the moral and immoral, the religious and irreligious, male and female, the upper class, the middle class, the lower class, and everybody in between on the main road. And from the looks of it, it would seem that the king had had gotten rid of all of his standards. Doesn't it look like that? Like he went from like an exclusive group to like anybody. Like it would seem as if the king forgot all his standards. And some people might preach, look at the king getting rid of all of his standards. Yet something strange takes place in verse 11. A man is kicked out of the feast for wearing the wrong attire. You see, the man was casually dressed. You could say like he was inappropriately clothed for the occasion. What is Jesus trying to tell us about heaven? What is Jesus trying to tell us about the kingdom? Listen to this. This is important. This is so important. Though all are invited to the feast with the king, you're not allowed to come in wearing your own clothes. That's, that's pretty important. <laughs> Though all are invited to the feast, you're not allowed to come in wearing your own clothes. I'm going to break this down and then we're finishing. What does that mean? The gospel of Jesus Christ, what Jesus has done for you, the good news, is not universalism. Right? It's, it's not, what the parable is not saying is that once upon a time, God had really high standards and then Jesus came and now you can just do whatever you want. Y'all with me? Okay, I didn't think all of you would be with me. It, this is not a parable about Jesus kind of lowering the bar. Hear me clearly. Jesus loves you. And all are invited. But he doesn't just let anyone in. This is where it takes a turn, right? This is where some of you may say, well, I don't know if this church is for me. This might sound harsh. But that reality is love. Some of you are like, well, how is that loving? He doesn't just let anyone in. You see, in the kingdom of heaven, you're not allowed to come just as you are. That's what it says. I mean, I know what the song says. So I was like, I'm never going to sing that again. And I don't mean to be all rigid about it, but I just want you to get this. You know, in universalism, what does it mean? Everybody's welcome, right? Uh, there are many who don't believe in God's wrath, Right? There are many who find it offensive to believe in a God who judges and punishes sin. I mean, it's even offensive to me. Like, oh my gosh. Are you with me? Instead, they believe in a God who accepts everyone. Just as they are. Come in. It's wide open. It doesn't matter. Wear whatever clothes you want. But that's not the God of Scripture. That might be your God. Made in your image, but that's not the God of the text. Timothy Keller, Pastor Tim Keller says, we live in a cruel world. Don't we? Don't we live in a world full of injustice and oppression? Are you with me? Can we all agree on that? And to say that God just lets everyone in is unloving and unjust. If you think God lets everyone in, but at the same time, you agree that this world is full of injustice and oppression. You got a problem. You see, for God to be a God of love, he's got to be a God of justice. 
And for God to be a God of justice, he's got to be a God who judges. And for God to be a God of judgment and justice, he's got to be a God who punishes. And for God to be a, God, a punisher, that means that somebody going to get in and somebody not going to get in. The problem is, is you want to be the judge. You want to decide who gets in and who doesn't get in. You want to determine, huh? We're going back to Adam. You want to make the determination between what is right and what is wrong. You're unwilling to look at what God says is right and wrong. And you want to make the determination so that you can make sure that you're included, but this group is excluded. But it don't work that way. You are not God. You are not creator. You are finite. And so if God is to be a loving God, it means he's going to be a just God. And if he's going to be a just God, it means he's going to be a judge. And if he's going to be a judge, this means he's going to hand out punishment, which means there are going to be some people that don't get in. The problem is, is you want to make that determination. You're invited, but you got to come in the royal wedding robe. You can't come in your own dirty clothes. So some of you might be thinking, well... I'll just clean my clothes then, right? I got you. I'll just go to my house, clean my clothes. You see, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is not legalism either. Universalism is all comes in. Legalism was, I got to look like this. It's religion, right? The gospel is not religion. In fact, you know what Isaiah tells us? Your good deeds are like filthy rags. That's what the scripture says. He says, you can try your best. You can pray a lot, go to church a lot. You can give a lot of money. You can be in this room and say, you know what? I give more than anyone else in this room. And you can think that that's going to get you in. But Isaiah says, even your best deeds in the presence of a holy God are filthy racks. And so your universalism isn't going to get you in, nor is your legalism. I hope you're getting this. To think that your good works will get you into heaven is equivalent to Adam sowing his own fig leaves. There's nothing you can do to clean your own clothes. You can't give enough, pray enough, fast enough, read the Bible enough, go to church enough to remove your stains. No garment, no article of clothing, no covering we can create is appropriate attire for the wedding feast of the king's son. So what are we going to (laughs) wear? What are we going to wear? I'm glad you asked. Invite the team to come up. Did you notice in the parable, all, that, all who were invited and came had to actually come hastily, immediately. Like everything was ready. You catch that in the parable? Y'all talk back to me a little bit. You all catch, catch that in the parable? Yeah, yeah, thank you, thank you. Everything was ready. And so I want you to know, like, when, when the king sent somebody out, it wasn't tell them, hey, the wedding's coming up in three months. They had already RSVP'd. It was ready now. Things are ready. And everyone said, no, I'm not coming. So he said, we got all this food. We got this big space. Right? We paid all this money for this venue. <laughs> Go get everybody. And so everybody had to come hastily because it was what? It was ready. Which means everyone who came couldn't get ready. They were dirty. They were on the road. They were at work. They were stinky. They had blemishes, spots, wrinkles. No deodorant. Y'all with me? So the question is, where do they get their clothes? How did one man be draw, dressed incorrectly and everybody else okay? Because when, when, when the king went to him, he, he was speechless. He didn't say, well, well, I didn't get a good chance to go home. He was speechless. He didn't have an excuse. The implication here is this, that the king provided garments at his own expense. So prior to entering to the wedding feast of his son, the guests shed their dirty robes and exchanged them for the royal robes of the king. The king provided the robe. And so what you have is this man that entered in that just refused to wear the robe that was provided for him. Listen, two coverings, two coverings, two coverings. You can either come in your own clothes or you can come in the clothing that the king has provided. You can come wearing Adam's dirty leaves or Christ's robes of righteousness. Remember Genesis? Upon finding out that Adam attempted to clothe himself, right? Adam tried to cover up himself. Look at what the Lord does. And we're we're finished here. 
Look at what the Lord does. Genesis chapter 3. We can go down the screen. Genesis 3. Let's read that. Look at that. Look what the Lord said. It says, and the Lord God, what did he do? What did God do? He made. He made for Adam and for his wife, what? Gar- garments. That says gardens, but praise God. It's probably me. Garments of skins. And what did he do? He covered them. Did you know this is the first, it's implied that an animal was sacrificed here. This is the first death in creation, right here. Something had to die to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. An animal, blood had to be shed. Are you with me? And that was God's covering. An animal had to be sacrificed. Blood had to be shed. Something had to die so that Adam's sin, Adam's shame, Adam's guilt, Adam's nakedness could be properly covered. So we get back to the last Adam. In his life, Jesus lived perfectly on our behalf. Never failed, never stumbled, never fell. He was tempted in every way that you and I were tempted, yet he knew no sin. He did not sin. And yet in his death, he who knew no sin became sin so that you could become the righteousness of God. And so the one who didn't sin on the cross became sin so that your sin could be placed on him and so that he could adorn you with his obedience. Y'all, man. And now anyone, all, here's the all part. Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, middle class, upper class, all the class, lower class. Are you with me? All. All roads. Invite them all. All are being invited. All are called. But only those who wear the robes that the king provided at great cost to himself. This is what salvation is. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, two things happen. Number one, you put your sin upon him. And on the cross, Jesus is punished. That's where the judgment comes in, right? Because judgment has to take place because God is just. And so Jesus soaks up all the judgment upon himself. And so you put your sin on him. But guess what? You're naked. (laughs) And so then guess what happens? Jesus then adorns you. He clothes you with his obedience and his righteousness so that when you stand before the Lord on that day, you'll be in the garments of the king. You'll be adorned. You'll be invited to the feast. You'll be allowed to celebrate and eat. You won't be there in your dirty clothes, but you'll be there dressed in the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. Again, thank you so much for tuning in today. Our prayer and hope is that you would be transformed by God's word and live for him. Before you go, would you consider giving a gift today? By faith, we are walking into the new year and continuing to believe in what God is doing in the city through our missional communities and mercy ministries. Visit us at inspiredchurches.com to give a gift and let's see together the great things God will continue to do in the new year.